Good morning, church family. Matthew 5, 17 to 48. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I said to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is his city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no, Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may have sons, so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. 
that he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is God's word. Thanks very much, Laz, for reading for us. Thanks to Mark also for leading. Thanks also to Steph and the, the team and the, uh, the tech team for their service this morning. And also thank you for all those new people who we've got in the building today. It's great to see a whole lot of new faces. If this is your first time with us, we're working through a series in Matthew chapter 5 to 7, the, what's come to be known as the Sermon on the Mount. And we're about three weeks in today. We're looking at uh, the passage that Lazarus read for us. And we'll be doing this over the next eight weeks as, or the next five weeks from here as we work our way through the sermon. Now, Today's passage is quite long, uh, so I thought rather than take it all in one gulp, I thought it'd be better if we tackled verse 17 to 20 on its own first, and then we'll get into the examples that Jesus gives in verse 21 to 48 next week. So do come back next week for that. But uh, we've got to be aware that all that other stuff that we read at the end of the chapter won't make sense unless we really understand what Jesus is saying in verse 17 to 20. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get underway with that first section. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, please open our eyes this morning that we may behold wondrous things out of your law. May your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. Now, near the church that I went to with my family growing up, we used to drive past another church on the way to our church on a Sunday. We'd drive past it twice a day. Uh, We used to go to church Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings. We drove past it twice every time. And this church had one of those big church signs next to the road. And I can't remember exactly what the wording is, but it was some variation on the home of New Testament Christianity. And whatever they actually meant by that, I found... Excuse me. It's not COVID. I had a test. (laughs) I found that sign always confused me. No matter what they actually meant by it, it always confused me. On one level, of course, it sounds very exciting and attractive, doesn't it? The home of New Testament Christianity. You know, a Christianity which is freed by Jesus from all the Old Testament bondage and laws and judgment. Uh, A Christianity where we can worship a God who's love and grace and mercy. But at another level, I thought it sounded quite odd because I knew that at least two-thirds of the Bible I was taking to church each week was Old Testament. This is one of the reasons I I prefer and I encourage the use of a a paper hard-copy Bible because you can actually see how much of the Bible is Old Testament. I wonder if you can see this. So that's, that's all the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. 
There's a lot of the Bible that Christians read that is Old Testament. Can New Testament Christianity even be a thing if more than half of our Bibles are Old Testament? Now, I know a lot of people have told me over the years that they find the Old Testament hard to read. I can understand that. I understand why they might prefer to read the New Testament. The Old Testament has got all sorts of strange laws about how God's people uh, were supposed to eat, how they were meant to dress, uh, how they were meant to cut their beards and their hair, uh, how they practiced their religion, and, and also there's lots of blood. It's quite gruesome, actually. The Old Testament's got all sorts of strange and cryptic prophecies and visions, and it's, it's mostly about a nation that doesn't exist anymore in the same way. It's written in a foreign language, and let's not even get started on the names. It sometimes feels like the Old Testament comes from another planet, doesn't it? And don't we have everything we need in Jesus? So why not just ditch the Old Testament, or at least keep it as a kind of relic of what it was like to be God's people before Jesus? Maybe claim its promises of peace and and mercy and heaven, but not be too worried about it. I mean, isn't New Testament Christianity exactly what followers of Jesus should be on about? Now, religious leaders and and faithful Jews in Jesus' day were very concerned that this is exactly what Jesus was encouraging. They, They listened to what Jesus said. They saw how he welcomed sinners and tax collectors and how he gathered fishermen and others from the rougher end of society and told them that the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. And they were very suspicious and concerned that Jesus had come to tell people they could safely ignore God's laws, throwing wide heaven's gates and offering an easy way in, but in the process actually putting people under God's judgment forever for ignoring his laws. Now, they're a bit like the parent uh, who's concerned that their child's new friend at school is going to get them into a lot of trouble. By the looks of things, we need to be really clear what Jesus actually thinks of the Old Testament. Because knowing what Jesus thinks of the Old Testament is going to tell us what we should think of the Old Testament and what we should do with it. Now, we're going to cover verse 17 to 20 this morning under just two headings. They're there in your service outline. It'd be great if you had a Bible open with you so you can follow Jesus' words. Now, in verse 17, it sounds a bit like Jesus is responding to a rumor or a direct accusation that he has come to abolish the law and the prophets. And for many of the very religious, as we read Matthew's gospel, their concern about Jesus was how he was interpreting the Old Testament law. This is uh, what's contained really in the first five books of the Bible. They watched Jesus welcome sinners, eat with tax collectors. They watched Jesus heal on the Sabbath. And so what does this say then about his attitude to the very foundations of Israel's relationship with God? And now people are flocking to this guy. Well, Jesus responds up to the ante here, and not just the law, but he includes the prophets as well, covering the whole Old Testament, everything God has said and revealed of himself to his people over the last 1,500 years. And he says in verse 17 and 18 to his disciples, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. 
I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. But truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It is critical that we understand Jesus here. Jesus did not come to replace the Old Testament. Jesus did not come to make the Old Testament redundant. He didn't come to improve on the Old Testament or even to revise it or or reinterpret it. He did not come to succeed where it had failed, like a plan B to the failed plan A. The Old Testament is not like that old phone that you had that eventually was too old to get software updates anymore, so you chucked it in a drawer, where it probably still is, and you got a new model. We've all got them. We must understand that the Old Testament and the New Testament, friends, are actually one story with real continuity, that the God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament. He hasn't changed. He's got the same holy character, the same demands on humanity, the same deep commitment to his people, and the same purpose for his world. And his law, as Jesus says, is going to stand in its entirety until the end of the world. That is why Jesus didn't come to cancel or abolish the law and the prophets. No, he came to fulfill them. Now, I think it makes sense to speak of Jesus fulfilling the prophets. That's probably how we're more used to talking about Jesus' work of fulfillment. After all, what is is a prophecy unless it is eventually fulfilled? But what about fulfilling a law? Now, that seems a little strange, because isn't the law just rules which you either keep or break? Well, that's not actually how the Old Testament law works or how it ever did work. The laws in the Old Testament certainly weren't random or arbitrary, even the ones that seem very strange to us. And they weren't simply for the good order of Israelite society. They weren't just to provide kind of moral boundaries for the community. The law was much more, and Jesus zooms in on the law in the rest of the section. The Old Testament law was actually the basis on which God's people related to him. The law reflected God's holy character and told God's people who were separated from him by their sin how they could approach God and under what circumstances and how they could be made suitable to be in his presence. But it also did something else. It was as a reflection of God's holy character, it made a very clear distinction between God's people who followed God's law and those around, those people in the world around them. Everything from their dress to their diet to their relationships marked them out as different, as holy, as people belonging to the Lord. And this, friends, is the law that Jesus came to fulfill. Jesus came to fulfill the law by obeying it completely, something God's people were never able to fully do. He fulfilled the law by reflecting God's holy character in the world through his perfect obedience to the law. He came to fulfill the law by receiving the punishment for sin that the law required in the place for sinners who could never keep the law. He also came to fulfill the law by teaching it rightly, 
as, as the right and joyful response to God's grace, the way God's people are meant to live, and not as a burdensome barrier that the religious legalists of his day had made it, made it to be. We're going to look more at that side of things next week. This is how Jesus fulfilled not just the prophets, but the law as well. Another way to say it is that he completed the law and the prophets. It's a mistake to think of the Old Testament as an end in itself, especially the law. Because the whole Old Testament, law and prophets, were not ends in themselves. They were always pointing to Jesus. And so that's why Paul can say to the Christians in Rome, in Romans chapter 10, verse 24, and Scott, you might have to put that up because my, or Nancy, if you could put that one up, my slides aren't updating here. Romans 10, verse 4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Not end in terms of it's finished, but end as in a goal. Christ is the goal of the law for righteousness to all who believes. And notice, not to everyone who obeys, everyone who keeps the rules, but to everyone who believes, everyone who trusts that Jesus has fulfilled the law of God. And through that belief, through that trust, through that faith, not through obedience to the law, they are made righteous, restored to a right relationship with God. And the righteousness of Jesus under the law is credited to his people. Isn't that wonderful? It's great news. It's the gospel. But it's also not the end of the story. Jesus doesn't say he's come to fulfill the law and now the law's over. It's not an end, as we said, in that sense. He's not come to abolish, but to fulfill, and not even the smallest part of the law will be done away with until the end of the world, verse 18. The law will only pass away when it is no longer needed, when we are restored to a perfect relationship with God through Jesus forever in heaven, where sin is no more and we will see God in all his holiness and glory. In other words, we won't need a law to tell us how holy and great God is. We'll see it for ourselves. And let's remember also that God's law is still the law under which God will judge the world when Jesus returns. The work of the law is not done yet. And this, of course, raises the question, what are we meant to do with the law that Jesus has fulfilled this side of heaven? This brings us to our second point this morning in the next two verses. The law still has an important part to play in the lives of Christians, in the lives of disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we've said, God hasn't changed between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He hasn't changed since Jesus died on the cross. And so his law hasn't changed either. It still reflects his unchanging, holy character. And it'll be the standard by which he judges the world. The law is meant to be upheld by Christians. And it's meant to be taught and passed on and taken seriously. So look at verse 19. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. It's important to see here that 
those who relax even the least of the commandments, they aren't excluded from heaven. They may still be in God's kingdom, but only as the least themselves. Those who will be called great in the kingdom are those who do the commandments and teach others to do the same. But it's not their way into the kingdom. The law of God is very important for Christians, but it's not the way into the kingdom. But it's clear from these verses that those who are in the kingdom ought to have a very serious attitude about the law. Now, as I said, we'll touch on the kind of guts of this next week, but at this point it does raise the question of what we're all meant to do with those strange Old Testament food laws and clothing laws and and laws about sacrifices and other things. Are we meant to keep those laws too? And in fact, have we as Christians relaxed those commandments and so are in danger of the judgment Jesus talks about here? Well, we haven't relaxed them at all. What, what has happened is that Jesus has fulfilled the law. I want to explain to you how that works. Because you see, many of the Old Testament commands are moral. They have to do with God's character and how we reflect that character in our attitudes towards life, towards our possessions, towards creation, towards others, and towards ourselves. The Ten Commandments are a bit like this. It's a good example. God's character hasn't changed, so neither have the laws which reflect His character. But other laws, like the food laws, they've actually been specifically addressed by Jesus precisely because they've been fulfilled in the gospel. Old Testament food laws and laws like them were meant to mark God's people out as distinct from the nations around them. But when Jesus came and the gospel went out to the nations so that they no longer had to become Jewish to become part of God's people, that distinction was no longer necessary. And so in Mark's gospel, Mark notices what Jesus says about food and he realizes the implication. So in Mark 7 verse 19, Mark makes the point. In saying this, he declared all foods clean. You've also got Peter's interaction with Jesus in the vision in Acts chapter 10, where the sheet comes down from heaven with all sorts of things in it, uh, and Peter's told, don't call unclean what God has made clean. So yes, thank God Christians can eat bacon and prawns. But we are called to live differently to the world around us and show that we belong to the kingdom of heaven. That's the point. Also, in a similar way, many of the Old Testament laws were simply shadows or placeholders that were meant to be fulfilled by Jesus. Think of the whole sacrificial system. The reason that we don't sacrifice sheep and other things here in church on Sundays is because Jesus has fulfilled those sacrifices. The book of Hebrews is great for this, and it calls these things copies and shadows of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. That's Hebrews 10 verse 1. The writer then goes on to say, And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins permanently. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. It's Hebrews 10, verse 10 to 14. You know, that's why a lot of the the New Testament, and especially letters like Galatians and Hebrews, they're warning to Christians who want to go back to the rituals and ceremonies of the Old Testament after they have come to the Jesus who's fulfilled them. 16th century reformer John Calvin put it like this, commenting on these verses. He says, we must look to the design and object of the legislator, talking about God. God enjoins ceremonies that their outward use might be temporal, but their meaning eternal. That man does not break ceremonies who omits who admits what is shadowy, but retains their effects. So even though the way these things are practiced is no longer the same, what they mean is actually full, more fully confirmed in Christ. All good so far. The law is not the way into the kingdom. Read through Jesus' fulfillments, the law is actually the way of the kingdom. But what are we meant to do with verse 20 then? For I tell you, Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I think we're right to feel a little nervous at this point. The scribes and Pharisees were the most scrupulous Jewish law keepers of Jesus' day. Scribes were law scholars who studied the Old Testament. The Pharisees were those who believed in a literal interpretation of the Old Testament law and aimed to live it out. We might call them conservative traditionalists. You could be a scribe and a Pharisee, or just a scribe or just a Pharisee, but they kind of had a lot in common. And Jesus says, to get into the kingdom, you've got to be more righteous than them. And who of us can possibly claim to be more righteous than the most religious of the day? Well, that's actually the point. We need righteousness if we are ever going to be saved from God's judgment. And it needs to be a perfect righteousness. Trying to achieve that righteousness through law-keeping is just self-righteousness. And it's not enough. Jesus says our righteousness must be greater than or must exceed that of the most religious. Righteousness is the entry requirement for God's kingdom and always has been. But the law cannot produce kingdom righteousness. Only by having the righteousness of Jesus, the one who fulfilled the law credited to us, can we enter God's kingdom. Romans 10 verse 4 again, for Christ is the end, the goal of the law, for righteousness to everyone who believes. And so when Jesus says, yes, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, or unless your righteousness is better than or greater than the righteousness of the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. What he's saying is that you can't get there their way. If you want that greater righteousness, it's found in me, because I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. So yes, Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets and to give them uh, their proper place in God's great plan to save his people. But the way Jesus articulated that fulfillment, it severely challenged the way the religious elite understood the law. They used it to try and impress God with their, their almost clinical law keeping. 
And that's because it's not the law keepers to whom the kingdom of heaven belongs. It's the poor in spirit, verse 3. It's those who know they cannot keep God's law and who look to him for the mercy they know they need, knowing that he's their only hope, and so they hunger and thirst after righteousness, verse 6 of chapter 5. Now, yes, we'll look more next week at the practical place of God's law in Christian living. But for now, can I encourage you, don't sideline the Old Testament. Very simple point today. Don't sideline the Old Testament. Give it as much weight as the New Testament as you read your Bible and learn to follow Jesus. Don't be scared of the Old Testament. The Old Testament was crucially important for Jesus, and it should be for us as well. I mean, without the Old Testament, without the law and the prophets, we can't appreciate or fully understand the gospel. The Old Testament gives us the categories for understanding the gospel. It shows us why we need the gospel, why we need a Savior, what righteousness is, and why, who God is, His commitment to His people. It even shows us how gracious and loving God is. What is grace for forgiveness when there is no law to answer? It's a cheap grace. It's no grace at all. And why did Jesus die if there was no law under which he was punished? To look at it from another angle, there's a Bible scholar who points out the New Testament presupposes a knowledge of the Old Testament. One estimate is that there are at least 1,600 direct quotations of the Old Testament in the New, to which may be added several thousand more New Testament passages that clearly allude to or reflect Old Testament verses. I mean, how can you even understand the New Testament without the Old? Friends, the the Old Testament should never be an optional extra for Christians or a dry and dusty relic of a bygone era. We should read it often and eagerly, and even the weird bits. And as we read it, we should be constantly asking ourselves, how does this show me my need for Jesus? How does this help me understand who Jesus is and what he came to do? How does this inspire me to praise God for what he has done for me in Christ? If you feel you need some help to read the Old Testament, you find it confusing, don't know where to start, uh, I thoroughly recommend two books. The first is Graham Goldsworthy's Gospel and Kingdom. Excellent book, very readable. Also, Vaughan Roberts' God's Big Picture. They're both excellent at giving an easy-to-understand and accessible map to reading the Old and New Testament as one story. And friends, if Jesus has come to fulfill the law and the prophets and so offer a greater righteousness, one which the law and the prophets bear witness to, Romans 3.21, I think we're called to two things. The first is we need to be reading the Old Testament in the light of the gospel, seeing Jesus revealed in its pages. And secondly, we need to live out the greater righteousness that Jesus has secured for us through his fulfillment of the law and the prophets. And that second point is going to be our theme for next week. But for now, how about we pray? Our God and our Father, we thank you so much for your wisdom and grace in revealing yourself to your people across centuries and millennia, working out your plan that was fulfilled in Christ. And Lord, we thank you so much that we're recipients of that plan. Father, help us to know you through your word, all of it, to see Christ in your word, all of it, and to see the grace that you've lavished on us in Christ in all of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.